Acts chapter 2. I want to reiterate again that we're looking for a drummer. So if you know Animal from the Muppets, no, I'm just joking. If you know a drummer or somebody, um, the, the, the Douglas family is, is moving here in a few weeks, and so um, Kelly has graciously been able to play the drums, and so she's going to be moving too, so we need a drummer. We need some more people for the praise team, so see Doug here in the near future if you'd like to be a part of our praise team. Acts chapter 2. Many of you are very familiar with the Lord of the Rings movies, the Lord of the Rings trilogies. You've either read the book or you've seen the movie, the story of Frodo and his friends. And the first book in the trilogy by Tolkien is called The Fellowship of the Ring. The Fellowship of the Ring. And about halfway through the book and the movie, Frodo and his companions go to Rivendell, which is where the elves live, and at the Council of Elrond, this may sound weird to you if you've never read the book, what are all these weird names, nine individuals pledge together that they are going to fight the evil forces of Sauron and form the Fellowship, or the Nine. And Frodo is the one who's going to bear the ring. And if you know anything about the story, the ring is a symbol of evil. The ring is is a source of temptation and corruption. And so the nine gather, nine different individuals gather. You've got four hobbits. You've got an elf. You've got a dwarf. You've got two humans and you've got a wizard. That makes for a weird group of people gathering together, uniting to make a fellowship to fight evil. And then as the story goes along, Boromir, one of the humans, gets tempted by the ring and almost kills Frodo. And so Frodo breaks the fellowship of the nine. He puts the ring on, which makes him invisible, and he decides to go off alone to face the evil in Mordor. Now some of you are thinking, what in the world... Does the fellowship of the ring have anything to do with church? A lot. you got nine different individuals coming together from all these different backgrounds for one common purpose, to fight evil and to commit their lives together in fellowship. Does that not sound like a church? A lots of different people coming from a lots of different backgrounds, pledging themselves together in fellowship to fight evil. Because there is evil in our world. It shows us what being a Christian is all about. We've been looking at this series on what is a healthy Christian. The first mark was that you're saturated in Scripture. We had to start with the Bible. Number two, you were persistent in prayer. Number three, a few weeks ago, active in attendance and i challenged you to be here on sunday mornings and and to make it a point to be active in attendance and i want to take it one step further because i think those things are basic to christianity reading your bible praying and showing up at church i mean if if we can't do those three basic things then we'd probably say houston we have a problem but i want to take it a step further this morning. I want to go a little deeper in what the Bible teaches us about being a healthy Christian. Because you can come to church every Sunday and be active in attendance. And you can hear me preach, and you can sing songs, and you can shake hands during the welcome time, and you can exchange some pleasantries, and then you can slip out the back and leave and never be connected 
in true, authentic fellowship, in meaningful relationships. So here's the fourth mark of a healthy Christian, what we're going to be studying this morning. A healthy Christian is faithful in fellowship. Is faithful in fellowship. Now what exactly is fellowship? It's a word that we kind of throw around a lot. There's the book, The Fellowship of the Ring. If you go down this hallway, we've got a fellowship hall. When somebody gets an uh, opportunity to, get, um, to study maybe abroad or study at college and, and, and the government pays for it or whatever, we say they've got a teaching fellowship. What exactly is fellowship? Some people may say, well, I fellowship with my friends at McDonald's while we sipped coffee and ate a Big Mac. I'm fellowshipping. What is fellowship? Well, let me tell you what it's not, first of all. It's not just attending church. That's not fellowship. It's not just showing up. It's not even just socializing. It's not cookies and punch in a fellowship hall. It's not having a potluck. As exciting as a potluck is at times, as Baptists we do it a lot, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're fellowshipping just because we have a fellowship hall or a place that we go and we eat. Because think about it this way. Civic organizations do the exact same things. Civic organizations eat together. Civic organizations have potluck. Civic organizations shake hands. Civic organizations socialize. There's nothing particularly Christian about that. The world does that. So what makes Christian fellowship authentically Christian and different? Well, let's look in our Bibles at Acts chapter 2. We're looking here at the early church. This is right after Pentecost. And this gives us a snapshot into the life of the early church in Jerusalem and what they valued as a church. So let's pick up in verse 42, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. They devoted themselves. It's a very strong word in the original language. It means to give passionate pursuit to, an intensity, an intentionality, an eagerness, an enthusiasm. They were enthusiastically devoting themselves to, notice what your text says, the fellowship. I think the ESV translates this accurately. In the Greek text, there's a definite article before the word fellowship, the fellowship. Not just a generic fellowship, but the fellowship. So we've got to ask ourselves a question, what is the fellowship? Why is it so specific, the fellowship? 
Now, the word fellowship, you may be familiar if you've been around church for a long period of time. The, the Greek word, this may be one of the few Greek words that you have memorized. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia. Now, this was used in the culture of the day to talk about relationships. So when somebody entered into a business relationship, they, they had koinonia. When somebody got married, they had koinonia. When somebody signed a lease on a property, they joined into koinonia. It, it was really a, a business transaction term that was used in that culture. And so the, the writers of the New Testament said, we're going to take this word that's out here in the Greek culture and we're going to Christianize it and we're going to make it a lot deeper. We're going to talk about true Christian fellowship. It means partnership. It means together. It means a union. It means a communion. It means having things in common. Having things in common. As Christians, we have a lot in common. We have a common Savior. We have a common theology. We have a common life. We have a common belief system. We have a common mission. We have a common vision. We are together. So let's ask the question, what exactly is the fellowship that they were devoting themselves to. Now, before we look at the fellowship that they were devoting themselves to, we've got to ask and back up and say, what's the foundation for their fellowship? What's the foundation for their fellowship? Because this is not just a generic fellowship. This is Christian fellowship, and there's a foundation. So here's the first foundation. We have fellowship personally with the triune God because of our salvation. If you want to talk about fellowship, you first got to start with the individual's fellowship with God. That we have fellowship first and foremost with God. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 1.9 says. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful, and in salvation, he's called us into the fellowship with Jesus' his Son. So if you're a Christian, you have this fellowship with Jesus. Now, not only do you have the fellowship with Jesus, but 1 John 1.3 says this, That which we have seen... And we heard and we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So there's the fellowship with the Father. There's the fellowship with Jesus. If you're a Christian, you have fellowship with God the Father. You have fellowship with Jesus. And what about the Holy Spirit? Are we going to leave Him out? No. The Bible speaks about having fellowship with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you've trusted Christ for salvation, you have entered into fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God has adopted you into his family. He's made you his child. And every single other person that's a Christian is also a child. So guess what? We are brothers and sisters is what the Christian word is that the Bible uses. We are blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ because of our fellowship first with God and he's created a family. Do you realize that the terminology that the Bible uses for church is a family? We are a family. We're brothers and sisters. Ephesians 2.19 You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're part of God's household. A household denotes family. Brothers and sisters with God as our Father. Another metaphor that the Bible uses for Christians is that of being a body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. 
For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So before we talk about fellowshipping with one another, we've got to establish the fact that first and foremost, our fellowship, our partnership, our communion is with God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And that sets the foundation for how we relate to other people as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now here's the second thing. And this may be, well, that sounds really, that's a duh, Sean. Here's the second thing. Authentic fellowship is only among believers. Now you may have friends that are not Christians. And you may have family members that are not Christians. And you may have deep friendships with them. And you may socialize. And you may have a connection with them. But if they're lost, if they're not a Christian, you can never have true authentic fellowship with them. You can have a relationship with them, you can have a friendship with them, you can have a companionship with them, but you cannot have the depth of what the Bible speaks about as fellowship. Fellowship is only among believers. Now, I want you to notice something. What's the context of Acts 2.42? How does your Bible begin? Look at verse 2. You guys tell me, how does the sentence begin in your Bible? What's the audience participation? What's the word there? And... Any, Greek, any grammar teachers here, English teachers? Do you start a sentence with and? No. Some of you older ones that remember grammar, some of us younger ones like, what's grammar? I don't know what grammar. And, do you start a sentence with and? You don't start a sentence with and unless you're an inspired scripture writer, but you don't start a sentence with and unless it links back to something that happened before. It's a hinge word. It links back to what just happened, and it pushes forward what's about to happen. So let's just read what happened before this, Okay. Let's find out why the and is there. Go back and look at verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Peter just preached this sermon. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and Peter and, the, and said to the rest of the, Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking bread and prayers. Who's the they? The 3,000 that just got saved and baptized. So what's this fellowship happening among? It's happening among new believers. Those who were converted, those who had trusted for Christ for salvation, those who'd received the forgiveness of sins. They, these baptized believers, were devoting themselves to fellowship. Now, here's the third thing that we see. You guys tell me again, audience participation. They devoted themselves to what comes first in the list. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So what comes first and foremost? What's the basis for our fellowship? Here's the basis. The apostles' teaching or sound doctrine actually creates true fellowship. You really can't have true, authentic fellowship if there's not sound teaching, if there's not sound theology. That's why they devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching. That's why the Bible and the teaching was so important. Now, let me ask you a question. What specifically unites us together as a church? Is it a political cause? Is it um, 
maybe an end times view, a particular brand of theology. Maybe it's a cause like we want to really end abortion or gay marriage. Or maybe we're united around the fact that some homeschool and some public school and some private school and some use the ESV and some use the NIV and some use the NASB and some of you use this or that. What are we united on? I'm not downplaying those things. But if you unite your church around those things as the foundation, what's going to end up happening? You're going to have infighting. It's going to be shallow. And then when the next and greatest thing comes along, that's what you're going to be into. Now, I'm not downplaying those issues. Those need to be important things that we need to discuss. But they are secondary to the foundation of the gospel of the word of God being the foundation for our fellowship. That's the only thing that's going to bind us together over the long haul. The only thing that's going to bind us together over the long haul is the word of God. Now, those issues flow from the word of God, but this has to come first. Now, that's what fellowship is. Let's see how this fellowship actually looks. What does it look like? I went in fellowship today. Okay, well, tell me what does it look like. What I want to do is I want to trace the Greek word koinonia throughout the rest of the New Testament, and I want to show you how that word is used. And it's going to surprise you and shock you and may shatter some of the views you've had of fellowship. If your view of fellowship is cookies and punch in a fellowship hall or a potluck, your view will be shattered, okay? So let's see how this word is used throughout the rest of the Bible. The same word that's here in Acts, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, koinonia. Okay, Romans 15.26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. The word for contribution there is the same word for fellowship. It's the word koinonia. Now, Paul is talking about what happened in the Macedonian churches. The Jerusalem church had undergone a financial struggle. They were in poverty. They were, they were being persecuted. And so Paul says, hey guys, let's voluntarily give to a fund to help support them financially. And so the churches in Philippi, the churches in Thessalonica, he challenged the church in Corinth to give financially to this fund. And Paul uses the word there, your contribution is fellowship. Now it's interesting, it's in the concept of giving that the word fellowship is used there. They koinonia, they gave, they contributed. 2 Corinthians 8, 3-4. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Taking part there is the same Greek word for fellowship. What is is it in context of? Giving to the needs of others in generosity, in financial giving, fellowship. 2 Corinthians 9.13 By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. The generosity of your contribution, same Greek word, koinonia, contribution, generosity. This doesn't sound like the, the, the paradigm that we have when we think of fellowship. Generosity, giving, Contributing? One last place, Philippians 4.15. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. The word partnership there is the same word for koinonia. Now, does this sound like what you've been taught about fellowship? Giving, generosity, partnering, looking outside yourself, helping those that are less fortunate with needs. In Acts here, it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And if you trace the rest of the word through the Bible, fellowship, and let me just say this loud and clear, it's costly. It requires investment. And oftentimes, it requires an open hand and an open wallet. True Christian fellowship is costly and it almost always involves a generosity. If we want to be biblical with what this word means, fellowship is costly and it always involves generosity. So I'm trying to shatter your image of cookies and punch in a fellowship hall and show you what true fellowship is. Now, let's go back to Acts, and and let's see how it played itself out. Paul doesn't leave us in the dark. I mean, Luke doesn't leave us in the dark. Luke, who wrote Acts, he doesn't leave us in the dark. He shows us how the fellowship actually carried itself out. He, He doesn't have us guess. So let's go look. Look at verse 44, back in Acts chapter 2. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Who's involved here? Say it with me. All. Thank you. You're awake. Who's the all? The 3,000 that just got saved. All 3,000 of them had all things in common. That word common is the same word for koinonia. They had things in common. They had fellowship. They were together. So number one, it was comprehensive. It wasn't just for some super apostles over here that said, you know what, us three are really going to fellowship. No, 3,000 of them said it's all fellowship. All of us are involved in this fellowship. Now, what was the frequency of the fellowship? Look at, look at verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple courts and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Day by day. So how often was it? Every day, everybody. Every day, everybody. 3,000 of them coming together in fellowship. Now, you may ask a question. What brought these people to do this? I mean, did, did the apostles stand up and say, you have to do this, and did they make them meet every day? No. You may say, what, what motivated all these people from different backgrounds to meet every day and to share everything and be together? And I will tell you this, it's not because they had a natural affinity and a natural grouping. Our culture likes to group things naturally, under natural boundaries, under natural groupings. Common interests, if you will. You have a city league basketball team, you join around your interest in basketball. You have a line dancing group, you join around line dancing. You, you, you have crochet group, you have rotary club, you have lions club, you have elks club, you have this, this group or that group. 
our culture groups around common interests. And usually people that have common interests kind of gather together. And our culture, for as much diversity as our culture says it is, you still look out there and pretty much most of the same people hang out with the same type of people. But that's not what's happening here. That is not what's happening here. This was not a group that would have naturally gathered together every day, day by day, all together. And you may say, well, how do you know that, Sean? Well, let me show you from the text that it's not a homogeneous group of people that were like-minded. Go back and Acts, and let's look who these people were. Contextually, this is 3,000 people. Who were they? They came on the day of Pentecost. Go back to verse 9 of Acts chapter 2. And Luke tells us who these people are. And you count with me. See if I counted correctly. Some of you kids, let this be a little exercise. Count with me all these weird names, okay? So Acts 2 verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. How many different geographic areas or people groups do we see represented here? I counted 17. They had different languages. They had different cultures. They had different skin color. They had different diets. They dressed differently. They had totally different backgrounds. But what happened when they came together? The Holy Spirit came in power and he united them together in true fellowship and you couldn't stop them from meeting together. People that the culture would look at and say, those people would never flock together. Those people would never hang out together. They're so different. They're from such different backgrounds. No, all 3,000 of them met every day, all day, together, having things in common. You couldn't keep them apart. You couldn't keep them from meeting. They were enthusiastic. No, No human civic organization or sports team or whatever can produce that, that type of unity among diversity that the gospel does when the church is birthed in that fellowship. You couldn't keep them away. They were excited. Now, you may argue with me and say, okay, Sean, I get where you're going. This was Pentecost. We'll put a little asterisk next to that and say, this was a period of special blessing in the church. It was Pentecost. And of course, there's going to be all this fellowship and and this radical commitment to each other because that's Pentecost. And Pentecost is unrepeatable, and that doesn't apply for us today. And let me say this. Yes, Pentecost is unrepeatable, but I don't see in the Bible where it's ever been rescinded that it won't happen in some way and in some fashion again. But even if, it, even if God doesn't bless us with revival, when I read the rest of the New Testament, what do I see? I see in the rest of the New Testament that this type of fellowship is both normal and healthy. It's the normal and healthy pattern of the church in the rest of the New Testament. So yes, authentic revival brings times of true fellowship, but it should be the normal part of our church life together. Now, let's talk about meeting needs here. Because what does it say there? Go back to Acts 2, 42. Look at verse 45. And we'll, we'll address this in just a minute because you probably have some questions here. What's going on here? They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's the key word in this text, as any had need. There's a huge difference between attending a worship service and actually meeting others' needs. 
in being a person of generosity. Let me ask you a very practical question. Very practical question. How do you personally know the needs of your church family? And how do you personally communicate those needs to your church family? Do you know the needs of this church family? And how do you communicate your needs to your church family? If we are brothers and sisters in Christ, if God has united us together as Emmanuel Baptist Church, do we know each other's needs? Because here it said, they distributed to anybody who had needs. Now, can this be done on a Sunday morning? Possibly, but probably not. Your needs can be communicated and you can meet other people's needs in a smaller context, in a smaller group setting. You can pray for one another. You can let each other know about your life issues. You see, here's the issue. Our American culture has become so consumeristic that when people walk in the doors of a church, here's the first thing they're saying. What's this church going to do for me? How's this church going to meet my needs? How's this church going to help me? What's in it for me? And what you look at as a church is, okay, this church is a religious offer of goods and services, and if they give me good goods and services, I'll keep coming. But as soon as they disappoint me, I'm gone. I'm not going to make the investment to stick around and hang out with these people. And here's what happens. You're never happy. You're always complaining about something. Nobody ever can satisfy you, and you don't stick around long enough to actually experience true, authentic fellowship because you're on to the next church. And then they bother you, and you're on to the next church. Because I said it again, fellowship is costly. It costs. And so in a self-centered world, most people don't want to take the risks to experience true fellowship. It's just too costly. You may come to church and say, you know what? I really like your preaching, Sean, and that's why I come to Emmanuel, because I like your preaching, and I appreciate that. I work hard to make sure I, I expose to you the text. But if all you're coming to this church is for this guy standing up here, and let me say this very lovingly as I can, you are missing out on a lot that God has to offer you in the Christian life. There's something deeper and more meaningful than just coming to a worship service and observing Yes, you need to be active in attendance, but the Bible says you need to devote yourselves to the fellowship. I was listening to a sermon the other day by our friend Artazerdia, and this is what he said. He said, you need to be an enthusiastic giver, not a ravenous consumer. I think a lot of people in church life are ravenous consumers. What is this going to give to me as opposed to how am I going to give myself to others? It's costly. I'm not going to downplay that fellowship is costly. It is costly. But I will say this, you will never ever experience the depth of love and commitment and joy in fellowship that you would if you don't do it. You'll miss out. And you may say, well, it's not worth the risk, Sean. I've been burned by church. I've been burned in church. I, I joined a small group and, <clears throat> and I had a bad relationship or, or, or I tried to let my opinions be known and I got shot down or I shared something I thought was in confidence and later found out it was brought up as a prayer request in a gossip session. I've been hurt. I've been wounded. No, thank you. I'm just content to come and watch the show and leave and put my wall up because I don't want to be hurt. 
I don't want to give myself to others. I don't want to take the risk. I don't want to take the emotional toil, the spiritual toil to invest myself in others. And I will say, I, I understand that. That's legitimate. <clears throat> That's a legitimate fear. That's a legitimate concern. And I understand the amount of energy it expends to give yourself to fellowship. But let me just say this. If you're not doing that, you're not healthy. You're not healthy. Now, let's ask the question, what's this issue about selling their possessions? They were selling their possessions, they were selling their belongings, they were distributing to the needs. Now, there's another word that has the word common in it. It's called communism. This is not communism, okay? What's communism? Compulsed, forced distribution of wealth by the government where you have to do it. Nowhere does the text say this was forced or it was compulsory or it was mandated. This happened spontaneously because the people just had the joy of giving. Now we also find out, if you read the rest of the book of Acts, they still own their property, they still own their homes. This wasn't like a commune or communism. This was just a period of generosity. They saw somebody with need and they gave. That may be material, that may be financial, that may be time, that may be energy, that may be friendship, that may be emotional, that may be counseling, but they gave to those who had need. And I want to just say this, if Emmanuel is operating the way God has called it to operate, there should not be one needy person in our congregation. Financially, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. There should not be one needy person. Because what does true fellowship do? True fellowship involves meeting real needs with generosity, with love, and with encouragement. Listen to what 1 John 3.17 says. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Notice verse 46 back here in our text. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were glad and they were generous. They were marked by a generosity. You know, being a church is, is far greater than what we often think. We're not just a religious club of like-minded people that kind of gather together to kind of do something every Sunday. That's not church. We are a fellowship of blood-bought brothers and sisters who have been joined together by the gospel to live life together with investment, with love, with encouragement, with fellowship so that the needs of the family are being met. Think about your normal family, your, your physical family, your earthly family. Have you been wounded the most by your closest family members? Probably because you're in close proximity to them. There's more potential for your family to hurt you because you're in close proximity. But have you experienced the greatest depth of love and encouragement and support from your own family? Maybe. It's the same thing with your church family. We are to, 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 to be in such close proximity to each other that yes, we're going to hurt each other at times, but we're never going to be able to experience the fullness of what God has for us unless we give ourselves to the fellowship now, let me give you two conceptual models of how you can operate in life. These aren't original with me. This comes from a book called Total Church by Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. 
And most of you probably are going to relate to the first view of life. Here's the first view of how you can, how you can view your life. You are in the center of your life as an individual. You're in the center. And outside the center of your individual life are all the things that you do in life. You juggle your work, you juggle your family, you juggle your finances, you juggle your sports, uh, your, your, your leisure, your friends. And then church is kind of one of those things you juggle. And so you're an individual and you're juggling everything. And as life gets crazy, some things drop and some things go, and maybe church drops. But in the end, what you're doing is you're isolating yourself and trying to juggle life with you in the center and all these things outside. Very self-centered. I'm juggling my life with me individually in the center. Now, he says, think of an alternative view. Think of all the activities that you do in your life as spokes of a wheel. Instead of you individually in the center... You are in fellowship with your church family in the center. Not alone, but you're a body. And yes, you still have all those things that you deal with. You've got your life, your family, your finances, everything you still have to deal with. But instead of you individually juggling everything, now everything flows out of the fact that you're part of a church family and you still do life, but you don't do it as an individual. You do it together as a community. Now, that's a radical way to think about doing life, but it's Christian. John Wesley said this, there's nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. So let me give you practical application this morning. Let me give you an easy step. Here's the hard thing about this. I can't force fellowship. I can't go out and say, okay, guys, give yourselves to fellowship and Boom, it happens. It's gotta, you've got to invest. You've got you to put yourself out there. But let me give you just one small step. It's an easy step. Make it a priority to join a growth group and meet weekly for Bible study, prayer, encouragement, and truth fellowship. Now, I'm not asking you to do anything radical here. I'm not asking you to open up your home and invite people in. I'm not asking you to share your deepest, darkest secret. I'm not asking you to organize anything. What I'm asking you to do is participate in something that we already have going as a church. Every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Let me just say this. You're already here at 1015. Now, some of you, it's hard to get up a little bit earlier, but just kind of back up in time. If I just show up an hour earlier at 9, I'm already going to be here, so I might as well just come at 9. You can invest yourselves in joining a growth group with a qualified teacher where you can be with other believers, where you can open up your Bible, you can read, you can let your needs be known, you can let the needs of the church be known, you can pray for each other, you can love one another, you can encourage one another, you can be together weekly for that encouragement. So I'm just asking you to make a commitment to join a growth group. Now, our growth groups are going to kind of wind down here in the next couple weeks for the summer, and then they're going to they're jump back up again after, after Labor Day, and we're going to have a few new ones starting. And so... Just make it a priority to be part of a growth group. And you may say, well, I don't know what the growth groups groups are studying. Well, show up with your Bible and just sit and listen. Well, what if the growth group leader asks me to pray out loud? They're not going to ask you to pray out loud. What if the growth group leader asks me to share my deep, dark secrets in a prayer request? I'm not going to ask you to do that. What if I don't understand what's going on? Your growth group leader will help you understand that. I'm just giving you a baby step. We have growth groups built into the life of our church as a way for you to connect in that smaller atmosphere 
where you can be known and you can know in a very powerful and unique way that you're not going to get here on a Sunday morning. So just a practical action step is make a commitment to join a growth group. And if you're a parent, you think, what are my kids going to do? We've got growth groups starting from babies all the way up to senior adults, so there's no excuse. We've got child care. And it's not just child care, they're being taught. They're being taught the Bible at a very early age. So make it a priority. May this verse be a reality in our church. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. May we be a church that desires to share our lives with one another because we are so dear to one another because God has knit us together as a family. I don't know about you, but I need my church family. I need this church family. I need the fellowship. And I'm not being selfish saying I need it. God has wired us to need each other. And so we need that in order to be truly healthy. A truly healthy Christian is faithful in fellowship. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Help us to be a church family that's healthy and functioning and that we see the value of fellowship. That we'd see the dynamic of what it means to be united together where where nobody has needs. We share life. Lord, help us to, to have the grace and the power to be able to make those investments because it is costly. It requires a generosity of our time, of our energy, of our investment, maybe even of our, of our pocketbooks at times, Lord. But we want to be truly Christian. We want to experience true Christian fellowship, a depth of fellowship that can't be defined or, or, or duplicated by the world, but a fellowship that comes strictly because of being, being your children, Father. Help us individually to make the steps that we need to make to, to take some risk. And Lord, there are many people in this room right now that only come here at 10 o'clock or 10.15 on Sunday morning and don't come to a growth group. And Lord, they may have the reasons why, and I'm not sure what all those reasons are, but Lord, would you just move in their heart to just consider it, just to pray about it. Take that step of faith to just come next week to a growth group, to be involved. Lord, give us the courage to do that. And for some families, it may just be give them the ability to wake up a little earlier and get the kids out the door, Lord, because that could be an issue. So, Father, help us as a church to be faithful in a fellowship.